Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Are we allowed to cuss? Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter with CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. Today, we're going to be talking about how hard it is to get health care when you're homeless. My colleague, Kristen Wong, who reports on health for CalMatters, has been speaking with unhoused folks and health care experts across the state to better understand why. And since this is an area that neither Manuela nor I have covered very much, and we have an in-house expert, we thought we'd do something a little bit different here and bring Kristen in right at the top. We'll also be hearing directly from some of the folks Kristen has met these last few months as she's been reporting out this story. On that note, we'll be skipping our Avocado of the Fortnite segment this episode, but if you want to get your fix of wacky California housing stories, make sure to check out our last episode, which we dedicated entirely to the zaniest housing tales of 2022 and where we crowned our Avocado of the Year. So don't worry, we'll be back with more ripe and madcap housing avocados in 2023. So back to today. Welcome, Kristen. We're grateful to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate having the opportunity to talk more about this reporting. So Kristen, why don't we start with some of the top healthcare issues that homeless residents face in California and why it's so hard for them to receive adequate care? People experiencing homelessness have the same health problems that the general population has. Their problems are just unaddressed. So it's a lot of diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, cancer, oftentimes outbreaks of infectious diseases like hepatitis and typhus make the news. And while those are more common in the unhoused population, that's largely a reflection of people not having the ability to get tested or treated regularly. So there are tons of issues that I know we'll dive deeper into in the rest of our conversation, but what it comes down to in a lot of experts' minds and in the practice for a lot of unhoused people is that their living situation and the system that we have set up for traditional healthcare just isn't able to meet them where they are, quite literally. And a big focus of your reporting, Kristen, has been outreach groups called Street Medicine Teams. What is a street medicine team and what do they do exactly? So there are about two dozen street medicine teams in California. And what they do is they're primary care providers that go out into encampments to build relationships and provide primary care, urgent care, whatever sort of medical service unhoused people need right where they live. So what you're saying is these folks are actually meeting people where they are. They are. It's like a literal, this is not a metaphor. They are going directly to where the patients are. It's like a home visit, but on the street. Yeah. It's kind of like if you think back to, you know, leave it to Beaver when the doctor came to your house. So Kristen, you got to actually spend some time with some of these street medicine teams really all across the state? I did. I was really lucky to get to shadow and interview teams way up in Shasta County, up in Northern California, the Central Valley. And most recently, I spent some time with a couple of teams down in Los Angeles, near where you are, Liam. Mm. One of them was the USC Keck School of Medicine team. And I followed Brett Feldman, who is the director and co-founder of their team. He took me all over downtown LA to Skid Row and a number of other encampments along 
freeway overpasses and sort of hidden among hills where his patients live. I've been doing street medicine since 2007. And well, we started as kind of this like subversive renegade fringe of medicine that even the healthcare for the homeless people kind of thought we were a little bit crazy. So one provider that I spoke with told me that his job is probably 70% shooting the shit and 30% actual patient care. So that's kind of what we did. You know, they see maybe eight to 10 patients a day, but it's very time intensive because we're driving around the city looking for each patient. And if they're not where they normally are, then they have to go find them. Like, it's not like you're 15 minutes late to your appointment at a normal doctor's office and the doctor doesn't care. Like street medicine doctors have to go find them. That's a very casual way of putting it, but building up trust with people who are unhoused is a huge part of it. So I imagine that's a lot of what he was referring to. Yeah, it really is. And he actually, he mentioned that in Los Angeles County in particular, there are a lot more homeless resources than elsewhere in the state. But a lot of times these groups don't really follow through. Hmm. And so they might make contact with a person once or twice and then promise them something, whether it's housing or temporary emergency shelter or whatever it is. And then they never see them again. So for the street medicine teams, they said that it's really because their goal is that constant healthcare access. Right. So he said they're really sort of fighting this bias that a lot of people living on the streets have that people don't actually care and aren't really there to engage with them. So Kristen, you mentioned how there are a ton of resources for people who are homeless, especially in LA. So what void exactly is street medicine filling and how is this different from a lot of the things people can access? Like I mentioned, traditional healthcare, the way you and I experience it, is not set up with people who are unhoused in mind. Getting to the doctor, even if you have a job, super inconvenient. <laughs> Getting to the doctor if you're unhoused mm -hmm. is that much more difficult. So I talked with Brett more about that on the ride-along that I did with him. In order for them to come, like, they have to probably spend a few hours panhandling for the bus fare, decide if they're going to use it to eat that day or to come see me, leave all their stuff and risk of getting stolen, and all these things. So... Again, it's like flipping the your point of view from a system-centric way with sufficiency to a person-centric way of looking at it. So big picture, again, these systems aren't designed by or for unhoused people. And Brett sees street medicine where the doctor goes to the patient as a system that factors in the realities of everything that they're dealing with on the street. I think where we have been falling short, especially with this population, is their reality is so different from ours that um, we haven't been building reality-based systems for them. Okay, and so what about health insurance? I mean, do most homeless people qualify? All homeless people should qualify for health insurance in California. In California, very few people don't qualify for health insurance. So people who are unhoused qualify for Medi-Cal, which is the state insurance program for low-income people. But there's a difference between having health insurance and being able to access health care. Yeah, so talk more about that. So there are all kinds of regulatory hoops to jump through that with Medi-Cal that simply don't work for an unhoused person. 
For example, Medi-Cal will pay for transportation to and from a doctor's appointment, and that's something that they do for everybody. That's a benefit everyone with Medi-Cal has. But in order to receive that benefit, it requires the patient to provide a fixed address to the driver Uh and also give them several weeks' notice. So I think you can tell that there are some holes there for the unhoused population. Clearly, yeah. If you think about how annoying it is to deal with your own health insurance company, there are all sorts of little snafus in the regulations and the requirements that just, you know, don't work for the way that they live. So what kind of outcomes then do we see as a result? So what ends up happening is that most unhoused people with Medi-Cal just never see a doctor. Mm. Less than 30% have ever seen their primary care provider. Wow. I'm just thinking about how we would know the scope of some of these issues, since we don't even have a good grasp really on how many people experience homelessness in California, period. The best we have is a visual headcount done every two years of people sleeping on the streets and in shelters. But even that data is spotty, except to do year-over-year analysis. So what kind of data do we have about the health of the unhoused population? There is very little. That's such a good point, Manuela. And I, some behind the scenes on the reporting, as I was writing this story, I was frantically messaging (laughs) Manuela, why isn't there more data on this population? (laughs) I just kept apologizing. (laughs) (laughs) It's not your fault. (laughs) So as you mentioned, we have very little data on the scope of homelessness in general. There is even less on health conditions among the homeless population. Sort of anecdotally, street medicine teams and doctors at like free clinics that work with this group do know that there's a lot of untreated chronic disease, but the state doesn't track this information. So we're kind of left with national estimates and snapshots from researchers and a handful of counties that publish reports. Is there anything that we can kind of glean from this information? So for instance, do we know if there are any regional differences in health outcomes for homeless people? Like do people in cities fare worse than in rural areas or vice versa? What does that limited information, although limited, tell us? So it's hard to say, you know, definitively what any sort of regional health trends may be. Uh But in Alameda and Marin counties, two of only like four counties that do any data, we do know that half of all deaths among homeless individuals were result from acute or chronic conditions like cardiovascular disease, cancer, respiratory failure. In Orange County, these chronic health conditions make up a quarter of all deaths among the unhoused. And in LA County, heart disease is the second leading cause of death among people experiencing homelessness second only to overdoses. In San Francisco, 82% of deaths among people experiencing homelessness is due to overdoses, and even those deaths are considered preventable. Mm. We do also know from national estimates that unhoused people who live on the streets have far worse health outcomes than those who live in shelters. So from what we do know about the homeless population, California has about 174,000 homeless residents from that visual headcount that I mentioned earlier, and about 70% of them are unsheltered, meaning that they're sleeping in a car, a tent, or another place not habitable for people. That's more people than the populations of Pasadena or Berkeley. In New York, on the other hand, which is the only other state with a comparably sized homeless population, only 5% of unhoused people are unsheltered. Everyone else is staying indoors. So to put that into even sharper focus, California's unsheltered population is larger than New York's entire homeless population. 
It's crazy. I think that's sort of the most striking statistic that that I realized <laughs> during the course mm-hmm. of my reporting. And it's especially sort of heart-wrenching when you think about being unsheltered is a lot worse for your health than being sheltered. Because at least when you're sheltered, you know, you've got a roof over your head, you have somewhere sort of stable to stay. And also healthcare providers and social services know where to find you. Chris, and I remember one of the things that really stood out from your story was that the life expectancy of an unsheltered person is 50 years old. Yes, which is 30 years less than the life expectancy of the average Californian. Like our state has, in general, great health care and a pretty good quality of living. So we have one of the higher life expectancies in the country. But California has one of the highest poverty rates in the nation, which means many of us are one expensive health emergency away from becoming unhoused. And once you're living on the streets, any health condition that you already have is going to get worse. So from your reporting, you met a man on the streets of L.A. whose situation sort of seems to embody what you just said. Tell us about Danny Doran. Danny is a 56-year-old man I met through L.A. County's street medicine team in Whittier Narrows Park, which is in the San Gabriel Valley. Mm. The county started doing street medicine during COVID when they were trying to vaccinate as many people as possible and just kind of found that there were way more health needs than the virus. So their street medicine team sets up in Whittier Narrows Park every two weeks because there are free showers there on Thursdays that a lot of the unhoused population in the area come to use. So Danny was a super sweet man. You know, if you saw him on the streets, you probably wouldn't take a second look. He just had a baseball cap and a little black vest on. But he's had a really rough go of it the past three years. He's been homeless for three years. But he told me that he used to have a steady job as a plumber and a family. He was not able to finish high school, but he did eventually work up to owning his own business. I went straight to work when I turned the day after I turned 17. I was an excellent plumber and pipe fitter. I handled my customers with compassion and treated them like human beings. So Danny was... Married, he had a very happy-sounding life. He said that his wife always admired how much he had been able to learn despite not having finished high school. She was so proud of me that I, I, we'd watch Jeopardy and I'd have so that Jeopardy final answer a couple of times a week normally. So how did Danny eventually become homeless? His wife died about five years ago, so he was living alone three years ago when he fell into a diabetic coma and was hospitalized for quite some time. And during that time, he trusted a friend to pay his bills and his mortgage, but that friend ended up emptying his bank account and ran. Here's what he told me. I I had a career, and... It's just like snowballed everything bad. Yeah. I'm ready for a little bit of good. Wow, that took quite a turn. Um, so what kind of health issues is Danny facing now? He has diabetes, he has Parkinson's, and shortly before I met him, he also told me that he was beaten up and robbed, and they left him with a skull fracture. You know, when I met him, 
with the street medicine team, he was pretty, you know, shaky and unsteady on his feet. He hadn't had insulin for some time and was pretty nauseous. So the team gave him a plate of food and had him kind of, you know, I let him sit down for about 30 minutes before we got into the interview. But, you know, that kind of shows how you can have a chronic health condition like diabetes. And then once you are unhoused, it gets worse. You don't have your medicine. You don't have regular care. And then everything else that can happen on the streets, like getting mugged and robbed, also worsens things. Yeah. So where does Danny typically get health care when he needs it? The day I met Danny at Whittier Narrows Park with LA County's team, I asked him the same thing during our interview. When you typically need some sort of medical care, if where where do you go? The emergency room to get my medication and and it's such a cost to the insurance company, I'm sure, to have me go to the emergency room. But my primary care doctor, she doesn't no longer take uh, people like myself with Medicare, Medi-Cal. And so I guess she don't have to anymore. As Danny points out, going to the ER is expensive, both to the person and the Medi-Cal system. But every unhoused person I spoke with said if a serious enough health problem popped up, they relied on the emergency room, or they just ignored whatever was going on. And that really shows me that the way we have the system set up is not working for unhoused people. Right, because I imagine going to the ER repeatedly and getting you know different doctors every time means that it's hard for these patients to have their symptoms and their health issues tracked and dealt with in a more holistic way, say if they had a regular primary care provider were going there and then could be referred to specialists for some of the concerns they have as well. That's totally spot on. The emergency department is not set up for chronic conditions. It's set up to get patients in and out as fast Mm, as possible because you never know when a more sort of pressing emergency is coming along with a patient in an ambulance or something like that. So, you know, there's a limit to what doctors in the ER or urgent care can do for you. And it's really not the best way to deal with a chronic condition, which is what most people have. So I remember at the top, Kristen, you said that there are only like two dozen of these street medicine teams across the entire state. And as you speak more about the importance and urgency of some of these issues, that seems like a really low number, especially considering that there are more than 170,000 people experiencing homelessness on any given night. Totally. Brett's team at USC serves a little more than 1,000 people per year. And LA County's new team is aiming to reach about the same number, but that's compared to nearly 70,000 unhoused people in the county. So it's totally inadequate. So why aren't there more of these teams? So up until now, I think up top, Brett mentioned, he said that they're kind of little renegade teams operating outside of the system. Up until now, street medicine programs have essentially been operating as charity care. They're very small They're oftentimes volunteer-run. It's a lot of medical students or residents, and they're pretty few and far between. Hmm. But that's about to change, or is actually currently changing. The state's Medi-Cal agency has started to recognize sort of formally the benefit that this type of care delivery has, and they've made a number of regulatory changes to allow unhoused people to get street medicine care covered by Medi-Cal. 
So one important shift that you discuss in your story is that unhoused people are now allowed to have street medicine doctors as their primary care providers. Can you explain why that shift is so important? Certainly. So everybody's primary care doctor, whether you have private insurance or Medi-Cal, is the gatekeeper to your health care. You can't see a specialist without getting a referral from primary care. You can't get pre-approvals of certain types from insurance. You can't get certain prescriptions. But like I mentioned earlier, 70% of unhoused people have never seen their primary care doctor. So people like Brett, who are the ones actively in the field engaging with patients and seeing what they need and that they do need specialty care, weren't allowed to do referrals when unhoused folks needed them. How has that hampered his ability to do his work? Um, I can give you a brief anecdote. One of the patients that we actually were not able to find on the day that I did a ride-along with Brett has a pretty tragic story. It was a Skid Row patient. She's in her 40s, and she has chronic and unmanaged asthma. So she cycles predictably in and out of the hospital every three to four weeks. Uh And she needed a new medication that was recommended during a hospital visit, but could only be prescribed by a lung specialist or pulmonologist. So Brett's team tried for a year to get her a primary care appointment. And in the interim, she was hospitalized from one of these predictable asthma attacks. She suffered brain damage from lack of oxygen and can no longer walk. So that very severe deterioration in her condition was preventable if Brett was allowed to do that referral directly or to prescribe the medicine because it was recommended in a hospital visit. Wow, that is a horrific outcome as a result of this system problems or bureaucratic problems. Um, So is there any other ways that the state is making changes to address perhaps some of these other sort of hurdles that exist? The state is doing a lot to sort of overhaul the Medi-Cal system. There's an initiative called Cal-AIM that started at the beginning of this year, 2022. And the idea behind that is to make healthcare more streamlined and proactive for anybody with Medi-Cal. So what does that look like? So most healthcare is very siloed. Your cardiologist doesn't necessarily know what your primary care doctor is doing, who doesn't necessarily know what your psychiatrist is doing. And nobody has any idea what social services is doing. Right, right. Yeah. So if you think about any time you've had a health issue and the amount of time that you've had to spend on the phone with your insurance company or getting pre-approval for a prescription that your doctor gave you, most healthcare requires a lot of legwork on the patient's end. But not everybody has the time, resources, or know how to do that, particularly unhoused people Mm -hmm. who are facing, as Brett mentioned, a much different reality. Mm. So Cal-AIM, in part, is requiring Medi-Cal insurers to take on that legwork and do the coordination on behalf of the patient. And one of the sort of easier ways for them to meet that requirement for certain populations is to partner with these street medicine providers because they're already doing this work. So they are offering incentive payments in order to sort of spur these partnerships along. And how's that going so far? It sounds like there are already positives on the horizon. Brett told me that it's already making a difference. They're coming from both sides. They're making it easier to practice street medicine and incentivizing the plans to contract with street medicine. 
And the hope is that together that brings some sustainability. So what's the upshot? What does this all mean for the future of street medicine? So of those roughly two dozen street medicine teams that already exist, for a lot of them, hopefully these changes mean that they'll be able to switch from either sort of part-time or volunteer-run programs to fully staffed, full-time funded programs. And the State Department is also hoping that these incentives from Medi-Cal will spur the development of new programs in other areas of the state that don't currently have street medicine programs. So expanding street medicine teams sounds like a shorter-term solution, but what's the long-term? I think ultimately the long-term solution is housing, as you two both well know. Housing is healthcare, and until Newsom builds his promised 3.5 million homes and beyond, which you've talked about on this podcast before, homelessness is going to continue to be a crisis in California. But until then, we need to find a way to deliver healthcare on the streets. Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time to share this crucial reporting with us. I highly encourage listeners to check out your full story on calmatters.org. Thank you both for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Give Me Shelter. If you like us, please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen. This is important so that new people can continue to discover us and find out what we're about. We produce Give Me Shelter with CalMatters audio editor, Mary Franklin Harvin. Our engineer is Victor Figueroa. My name is Liam and I write for the Los Angeles Times. You can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from CalMatters, and my Twitter handle is at Manuela Tobias M. Thank you all for listening. One programming note before we go. We're taking a break for the holidays, and we'll be back in early January. Thank you for your support of Gimme Shelter this year and every year.